Our text this morning begins with a familiar Advent reading, uh, one that we'll hear on Christmas Eve. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is immediately followed by a kind of narrative version of the same message. The Pharisees come to question John the Baptist about who he is and what he's doing and whether he's the Messiah and so on and so forth. And John reminds them, in so many words, that he is not the light, but rather he has come to testify to it. Now, there's an interesting thing happening here that sort of bookends the Gospel of John. Near its end, on Maundy Thursday, the Apostle Peter will deny that he knows Jesus three times. And here in this text, John effectively denies that he is Jesus three times. John the Baptist does not need to be in the spotlight. He is content to testify to it. An Advent reading from the Gospel of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and he did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Creator God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the Golden Globe Awards for Outstanding Performances in Film and Television are nearly upon us, a ritual to be celebrated in the early days of the new year. Uh, these televised award ceremonies are always a really big deal. 
uh, and they get a lot of attention, but I have to confess that I don't personally have very much interest in them. I have no doubt that the works they celebrate are fine additions to the cinematic landscape, and with talented thespians like Willem Dafoe, Meryl Streep, and Sam Rockwell nominated for awards in 2018, I have every reason to believe that each of them turned in a noteworthy acting performance. But the thing is, I haven't seen any of these movies or television shows that are poised to win an award this year. With two little kids at home, I don't have much time to watch grown-up movies these days. And I generally waste the time I do have watching awful cinematic catastrophes that could never, in a million years, win an award. Now, some of the best, or rather worst of these, depending on how you look at it, are essentially vanity projects. Now, this is a phrase that gets tossed around a lot to accuse others of gratuitous, unnecessary, and expensive projects. When someone decides to install a neon-lit fish tank in their living room wall that adds no real value to the house, people call that a vanity project. When the mayor of London proposed an absurdly expensive and massive garden bridge that would reach across the Thames River, the transport minister, Lord Davies, called it a vanity project of the mayor. And when I suggested that we divert building maintenance funds to install solid gold doors at every entrance of the church building, each of them painstakingly etched with my likeness, People called it a vanity project. But you haven't seen a real vanity project until you've watched a movie that is produced, directed, and written by the same person who also stars in the leading role. A person unqualified to do any of those things. I've lately been enjoying the films of a guy named Neil Breen, Anyone ever heard of Neil Breen? Oh, man. You guys are missing out. Neil Breen is a wealthy, middle-aged architect in Las Vegas with a vision for cinematic excellence that doesn't need things like lighting, makeup, or set design. I mean that literally. Uh, if you watch the end credits of his films, it'll say, lighting, none. Makeup, none. This is somewhat concerning because uh, his next film, uh, he's made a crowdsourcing, uh, crowdfunding pitch for his next film, and he said uh, it's going to be filmed entirely at night. <laughs> In addition to bankrolling his own projects, uh, Breen writes the script, he directs everything, and he stars, of course, in the heroic leading role. Now, I'm not sure how to convey the charm of his films to someone who has never seen them, but uh, suffice to say, each of these movies follows a similar outline, more or less. Neil Breen uh, plays a brilliant computer hacker and computer scientist who delves into government and corporate systems with a 1992 Toshiba laptop uh, in order to uncover secret conspiracies. And along the way, he comes into possession of a magical rock that gives him supernatural powers and the ability to cure cancer. He also reunites with his childhood girlfriend, and even though they grew up together, she's now played by an actress who is clearly half his age. 
Now, I know that all sounds very specific, but trust me when I say that it describes at least three of his films to a T. But the most telling thing about Breen's vanity projects can't be found in the bizarre scripts or incomprehensible editing. It's the end credits, actually, uh, that really reveal how vain this whole enterprise is. They really tell quite a story. For one thing, as I already mentioned, Breen is uh, credited with every aspect of the process, not only wrote, produced, directed, and starred in the film, but he also credits himself with providing the catering. Now, there are a number of other things in the end credits, uh, such as editing, wardrobe, and special effects that he credits to various third-party companies. But at the end of the credit roll, he throws in this shocking disclaimer that no one saw coming. Any of the above listed companies in the credits with an N or a B in their names are fictitious, it reads. This work was actually done personally by Neil Breen. Just let that sink in for a second. He goes out of his way to make up fictional corporations and then says, oh, by the way, that was actually me too, as well. That's quite ridiculous. But even if one of these movies uh, did win an award, it would never be for Best Supporting Actor because there are none. Aside from a handful of inconsequential characters that are never given names, the hero that Breen plays is usually the only person on the screen at any given time. His character is the only one that matters. His movies are undeniably a labor of love, but more than anything, it seems to be a love of himself. Neil Breen, the king of Las Vegas, without the blue suede shoes. Now, a lot of people want to play the hero, the lead role. At the very least, I want to be the protagonist of my own story, my own life. There's a part of me that wants to affect change in this world, to bring some measure of salvation, to fight against injustice, like the heroes that I grew up reading about. Even real-life villains, I think, imagine themselves as heroes of some righteous cause. They, too, want to believe that they're a savior in some twisted way. But John the Baptist harbors no such delusions of grandeur. He's not a savior. He's just a guy who lives in a van down by the river. John has every opportunity here to play the hero. He's already garnered a sizable following of people that he's baptized. He's, he's got the attention of the social, political, and religious elite having become something of a celebrity in his little corner of the world. And when the Pharisees come to learn more about him, he's given the chance to claim the lead role in the drama of human salvation, at least in human eyes. Are you the Messiah? They ask him. No, he replies, I'm not. Are you Elijah? They inquire, wondering if he might be the reincarnation of Israel's greatest prophet. No, he tells them. 
Are you the prophet, they wonder, certain that there must be something special about this guy? No, he repeats himself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now that's uh, a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew scriptures, something that Isaiah said in reference to uh, Israel being saved from the encroaching Babylonian empire. But it's an interesting way for John to respond to these questions about who he is. John doesn't say, I'm John. He doesn't say, I'm a baptizer. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I am, in other words, a voice that no one hears. I am nobody of consequence. I am no one at all. Unlike most of us, John is not the center of his own universe. This story is not about him. He's the supporting actor, even in his own life. For John, everything points to a higher power and purpose, to love incarnate. And John isn't worthy to untie his sandals. My older brother wrote a book some years ago, a self-published story called The Iconoclast. It was the unlikely tale of a New York City hot dog vendor who becomes embroiled in a quest to stop Telly Savalas from traveling through time and rewriting some of history's most influential texts, the Bible included, in order to deify himself in the modern age. And in his nefarious ambition, Telly Savalas enlists the aid of certain corporate icons that gave my brother nightmares when he was a kid, like Mrs. Butterworth and uh, the Quaker Oats Man. And in this savage New World Order, having rewritten history, Telly Savalas would no longer be remembered as the guy who played Kojak or the dude who starred in those Players Club commercials in the 1980s, but rather worshipped as a god. His pantheon, a rogues gallery of sinister corporate mascots. What can I say? Creative genius runs in the family. <laughs> anyway, about halfway through the book, there's a random chapter that features two teenagers sitting on a curb outside of a convenience store in 1983. <coughs> Their names are Eddie and Mario. But that's of little consequence because they only appear in this one chapter in which nothing at all happens. Do you ever feel like you're just a useless character? Mario asks Eddie between sips of his oversized fruit punch slushy. Just a whim in the mind of some god. Have you been smoking the leaf man? Eddie replies. No, I'm serious, Eddie. What if we don't mean a thing? What if we just exist in this moment? Which, of course, they do. This is the only moment in which Eddie and Mario exist. My brother has an unusual sense of humor, and as a writer, he's amusing himself with this chapter that breaks the fourth wall by including inconsequential characters who realize that they're not integral to the larger story. And if you don't think that's hilarious, that's okay, because... My brother's favorite jokes are the ones that only he thinks are funny. 
He and I have that in common. All of that being said, where do we fall on the spectrum of significance? Are we closer to Neil Breen, the only character in the story that matters? Or are we like these hapless teenagers sitting on the curb, characters who don't matter at all? Of course, that's a false dichotomy, a choice between two extremes. Humility is a virtue, but it doesn't mean belittling yourself to the point of utter insignificance. Even John the Baptist finds that he has a role to play in the greatest story ever told, in spite of his efforts to diminish himself. Humility, really, is the ability to say, I am not the hero. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. It's the power to resist narcissistic instincts. And we've all got those, I think. You know, narcissism is like a survival mechanism run amok. The hardwiring of our self-preservation overclocked to its extreme limits. And it's an ugly thing. You know, just the other day I read a story about a surgeon who was arrested after it had been discovered that he'd been branding his initials onto patients' organs with a beam coagulator. It's one thing to take pride in your work, you know, but autographing someone's liver without their knowledge or consent is perhaps a bridge too far. Narcissism and hubris are especially prominent amongst leaders, and the bigger the job, the bigger the ego. We see a lot of this in politics these days, you know, a lot of swagger, lots of saber-rattling, lots of vanity projects in our legislation. Our president, Donald Trump, once said, uh, before he was the president, he said, show me someone without an ego, and I'll show you a loser. It's a sad commentary on today's bitter partisanship, which is often driven, I think, by inflated opinions of ourselves and our party of choice. By contrast, consider the story of John Stennis, a Democratic senator who was shot outside of his front door by two muggers in 1973. Hearing the news on his car radio, uh, the Republican senator, Mark Hatfield, turned his car around and drove straight to the hospital. And when he got there, you know, everything was in chaos, and he could see that the switchboards were being overrun with calls from media outlets and concerned constituents uh, and so on. And Hatfield sat down at one of these uh, without saying anything. He just sat down and uh, started taking calls, continued to do so throughout the long night. And when the sun rose the next morning, he wearily rubbed his eyes, put on his coat and his hat, and quietly left without drawing any attention to himself. It's a hard scene to imagine, this kind of nonpartisan humility. It's hard to imagine in a world where being in the spotlight is more important than doing good and faithful work behind the scenes. Life isn't about having an audience. It's not about drawing big crowds, as Winston Churchill once illustrated with his wry sense of humor. An interviewer once asked him, doesn't it thrill you that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? 
It's quite flattering, replied Churchill, but whenever I feel that way, I always remind myself that if instead of uh, making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. <laughs> we all have a role to play in this drama of the universe, but we're more like supporting actors and actresses, each of us doing our part to highlight the star. And even Jesus, born beneath a shining star, shunned the limelight. God took human form in Jesus Christ, a little baby, born a refugee in a lowly manger, raised in obscurity in a small town in the middle of nowhere, determined to avoid large crowds in his ministry and modeling the humility of a true hero. There's kind of an uh, <clears throat> awkward exchange between John and Jesus when Jesus shows up to get baptized. John doesn't want to do it. He doesn't feel like he's worthy. And Jesus doesn't want to baptize John because he's trying to humble himself too. Uh, it's a bit like two stubborn but well-meaning guys who go out to dinner and refuse to let the other one pick up the check. Ultimately, John... Uh, gives in, and he realizes that he does have a part to play. And this is it. This is the moment that he was born for. And he steps up, and he does what he was born to do. But he doesn't let it go to his head. After all, John knows that it's for the glory of God and not for the glory of John. And he knows that the best supporting actor doesn't always get an award, especially when the work is a labor of love. Amen.